Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Thank you, and welcome, everybody. And uh, Sidney Lumet, I think as all of you know, has received a number of salutes and awards over the years that could be considered Lifetime Achievement Awards, which might sometimes imply that they're at the end of their career. But that's certainly far from the case, as you're about to see. If you haven't seen the movie Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, it's um, an amazing film, an incredible piece of work. It opens in theaters tomorrow. Uh, we do want to thank Think Film, which is distributing the film and really helped make this evening possible. But um, it has... Amazing performances, and this has been true. It's been said over and over again about Sidney's films that he's an actor's director. And um, you're going to see three actors tonight who are incredible in the film. And, and there are more great performances than that. Ethan Hawke is our Renaissance man of the evening. Please welcome Ethan Hawke. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for saying that. Um, uh, I guess I, I join a long list of very accomplished actors who have had the privilege of working with Sydney, And it, it is a privilege. Uh, it was different than I thought it would be. Uh, I don't know what I thought it would be like, but it was different. Um, I remember I said to Phil uh, about halfway through shooting, I feel like there's another film crew on the other side of town with the same script and a different cast, and we're trying to beat them. You know, we're trying to wrap the movie ahead of them. It's like a race. Um, and, and I remember saying that, you know, if this, if this movie works, then I'm going to have to rethink my whole idea of process, because I, I, uh, I cannot imagine that this will work. Um, and uh, <laughs> I, I've never... I've never seen such a deliberate, uh, I'm going to steal your words, Phil, but, 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 a, but a focus of energy and the use of energy. And there is so much to learn from, from Sydney. Um, there's, it's a funny thing, you, people ask me that all the time, like, what did you learn? And, and I always, the thing I come to uh, when I ask myself that is, well, you just can't fake that much experience. Uh, I've worked with a lot of people who have theories about how to do film or theories about how to tell stories and theories about um, how to conjure performances and how to conjure the muse. And Sidney has a tremendous amount of experience about how to do that. And it really, the thing that shocked me the most was how prepared you were, Sydney, and how um, how much all the young filmmakers that I've worked with could learn. Everybody likes to complain about how they don't have enough money to make their movie or tell their story, and then they just burn money everywhere. Because, you know, um, all things be ready if our minds be so. And I had yet to work with a director who was as, as ready uh, as you were, and and who knew how to focus energy and how to focus our energy. And uh, it was really, really challenging, and I was really, really happy when it wrapped. Um, uh, because it was one of the most, just, most unpleasant characters I ever played in my life. And uh, it was absolute misery every day. And um, I'm so proud of the movie, and I'm sitting here rethinking my process, because it worked, and you work, and uh, it's an honor to speak on your behalf. Okay, one thing um, that I hope we can do tonight is uh, dispel a few myths about Sidney Lumet. And, and, and there's two myths that I want to deal with right now. One is that he does, that he does drama, that he doesn't do comedy. Um, I think what you're going to see is that he knows how to do comedy and mix it in with drama. Um, and the other is that he's mainly a director of men. Maybe the fact that his first film that he directed was called 12 Angry Men got this reputation started. But I want to just read you um, a list of some of the actresses that he's directed over the years. And these are actresses who played in, in starring roles in the film, not in supporting roles. Sophia Loren, Anna Mignani, Catherine Hepburn, Anne Bancroft, Candace Bergen, Simone Signore, Vanessa Redgrave, Lynn Redgrave, Ingrid Bergman, 
Lauren Bacall, Faye Dunaway, Diana Ross, Christine Lotti, um, Julie Christie, Jane Fonda, and Sharon Stone. That's just a partial list. Um, and there are amazing performances by all of them. And, and when you see this film, um, you're going to see another incredible performance by an actress who you're about to meet, Marissa Tomei. Um, well, one of the things that, uh, well, you were just talking about all those amazing women that Sydney has directed, and one of the things that I found so remarkable was that he put himself, he loves actors, that's his reputation, and it's true, so many directors are scared of actors and don't really want to talk to us, <laughs> you'd be over there and have your emotions, and <laughs> But Sidney likes having talking with us, even when he doesn't have to. <laughs> and um, one of the most striking things that, that, for me, in working with him was that he put himself in each of the actors' character. I could see it happen to him. I could see it kind of overcome him, shapeshift the muses coming in and him going into each character, and, so, and I felt that way with my character, female character. This woman was, he was inside her head, he was inside her body. And um, there's one scene that isn't in the film, but my character is stealing, she's having a hard time, and she's like stealing little things from drugstore or pharmacy and things like this. And I... It was a scene that could just kind of be overwrought, and we wanted to make it natural, but still have its importance. And he just—I saw him. I saw you walk the aisles of that drugstore and kind of become me. He was <laughs> doing a much better job, and he was just <laughs> becoming my character. And he looked at this little hairbrush, and then he came over to me and he said, "Why don't you just look at that hairbrush before you?" before you pick up that, that thing you're going to steal. And that's because he, he embodied her. And I, I always felt that he was with my character and that we were always creating it together. And I can't say that I've had that experience where the director, is his actor self is so alive and his... Uh, empathy and his, his heart with his actors and his characters, including, let's face it, a lot of times the, the female character is just misunderstood and gets the short shrift, and he didn't let that happen. And I think that was really extraordinary. Thank you for that experience. Okay. Please welcome Philip Seymour Hoffman. Hey, uh, I was just listening to Ethan and Marissa, and I was thinking how uh, how lucky we were, how lucky I am, how lucky we all were that we had the cast we had. Uh, and um, when I'm working, when I'm when I'm shooting a film, I, I, I get very. Uh, um, uh, sensitive, whatever. I don't know. I'm trying to think of the word, but uh, sometimes I feel sensitive about people being right off camera watching me, or uh, this eyeline stuff. You might have heard it before. Someone being in your eyeline or being distracted, and I've been like that for a while. And uh, on this film, I swear it, Sydney could have been sitting on my head, and it would have been fine. And. Uh, in fact, I wanted him to, <laughs> and um, and I, I literally have not done that with a director in years and years and years, and I don't know if I'll do it again. And uh, it's because I wanted, I, I I just wanted to say that because I I I think that's the best way to put it is that I wanted him there, and I wanted him there because I I, I think ultimately, as hard as it is to say this, I wanted to please him. Um. Because I think uh, what he's, I think he meant a lot to me. Uh, obviously, as a filmmaker before we started the film, but I think while we were rehearsing and then shooting, I think he started meaning a lot more to me uh, beyond that. 
And, uh, and that says something, because I think in order to make something, to create something that's, that has some substance in humanity, the people making it have to get dirty. Uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way. You know, they have to, they have to get intimate, they have to get close, and, so, and I think Sydney does that. And, um, uh, and I wanted to, to, to say, um, I, I saw, they sent me the, I was talking about this earlier today, Sydney. I'm sorry, I'm going to say it again, but they sent me this uh, reel of the clips that you're going to see tonight of other films that Sydney's done. And, and you, you know, if you've, if you've ever watched like a reel of someone's work or an actor, it's a, even a great actor or even a great director, the reel's always a bit disappointing somehow because the scenes are out of context and stuff. And you're like, well, I remember that to be better than that or something, you know what I mean? And I, I, that's always my experience, you know? And, and this reel... It's the exact opposite. And you'll see as you watch these clips, the clip would end and you'd want to watch the whole movie again. You'd watch this, I would watch this little two-minute scene and I'd want to watch the whole movie again. And then I was, and I think the clips that are chosen are great, by the way, whoever did, because there's a consistency in there of something. And I watched through them twice. And both times, probably says more about me than anything else, I, I was moved and I, you know, was really moved. And there's not a lot of scenes that you'll see about people grieving or anything like that, but it's just, there's something about, um, there's this consistent thing throughout that I couldn't deny, which is that it, all these characters, you'll, you'll see these characters, you'll see them in a, an event, in a, a time in their life, in a moment, where you know that what, what's go- something that's going on is why why is life difficult? Why is it like this? Why can't I do it well? Why can't I have that relationship? Why is this all so screwed up? Why can't I figure it out? Why can't I, you know, in this thing that, and you see every, all these characters, and it's so real, and it's so true that we all walk around quietly in life feeling that all the time, and that these movies, these characters, these stories that Sydney's brought to us, allow that to come out, you know, that cathartic, and you'll see what I'm saying. And I think in The Devil Knows You're Dead, that happens too. I mean, which leads to awful consequences, but it, 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 it happens. And I was just, and I don't, and I, I thought that's why all these, these scenes I'm seeing are, are so powerful and mean so much and make me want to watch the movie because what I'm watching is the thing that I yearn to see. Is that, uh, is that, you know, that we all can kind of get together in a room and go, yeah, it's so fucking hard, this thing that we're doing walking around breathing thing. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, and obviously the classic moment of, you know, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take any. I mean, I could go, but that, that moment is in all those people. And, uh, um, and it's a beautiful thing to see. And you'll see actors, and you go, I, Oh, that's right. That's that actor. My God, he's, I've never seen him like that. You know? And, and I was thinking that as I was watching these clips. They're being so brave. They're being so true. They're being so open. All these beautiful things. And that's what Sydney does. And yes, Sydney, you were right when you said earlier today, it's inside of all of them. But the fact is, is that as actors, we're always looking for that person because, you know, the other thing you said is true is that we're all very shy. Everyone thinks that actors are, you know, want to be out. But we're all actually, just like everybody else, don't want to really show our emotions. And we're looking for that person that we can trust and that will lead us to a place where we can feel like we can actually express those things that make it the going to the film and the theater uh, an exciting social event. Uh, And that's it. Thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of it. Well, let's just say it now, best director, Sidney Lumet, and he is with us tonight, and even though this is a tribute, we're going to put him to work on stage now. So please welcome Sidney Lumet. You're always prepared. You brought your own water. I brought my own water. (laughs) 
What does all this talk about age mean to you? All the press coverage of this film um, is saying you're 83 years old, and there's two ideas. One is that only somebody younger could have made such a film, that you've made a film, and, and the other is that, um, you know, that all your experience is paying off. David, so what, yeah, what I have the you? remotest idea. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I kind of resent it in the sense that <laughs> it's just an, <clears throat> excuse me, an automatic assumption that as you get to be older, you can't do anything, uh, which is nonsense. Of, uh, if you hate your work, I guess it's true. <laughs> if, if you love your work the way I do, hopefully, not a piece of wood, <laughs> hopefully it's just going to get better because you learn more, you're able to do more, and uh, a little circle comes in there somewhere. <laughs> Well, uh, you had a lot of experience before you made this film. I mean, you directed about 250 teleplays before you made your first feature film. But 12 Angry Men has a lot of the qualities that, that we see, as Philip was saying, about your work with actors um, are right there in this first, first feature film. So, so can you tell us what, what this film, what doing this film was to you, what this experience was to you? You mean this last the one? one? 12 Angry Men. No, oh, 12, 12 Angry Men. We'll jump around in time. So 12 Angry Men. I never knew that it was difficult. Uh, everybody said, oh my God, it's going to be 12 people in one room. That's not even a movie. <laughs> but nobody, nobody told me that till after I'd done it. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it was because the main thing that interests me, of course, is people. Yeah. And, uh, and, he, and defining human beings as best I can and as smartly as I can. I mean, use of intelligence. And to me, it's not a movie just because a, a face is shot against a mountaintop. Uh, face against the wall is also a movie if the face is doing something. Right. Uh, it's the face that I'm interested in. And I don't care if it's a mountaintop or a wall. And I think, I think one thing that did become clear when I was looking at the movies to um, you know, pick the scenes was that your movies are often about ideas about things like the, how the justice system works. That's one reason we teach the film at the museum. But ultimately, you you're seem to mainly be interested in these emotional moments that in 12 Angry Men, what you're building to is Lee Jacob's character. And it's all about his relationship with his son and, and, and the, the emotional breakthrough that he has. Yeah, it's a question of revelation. Uh, what are you going to say? What are you, what are you going to say about this character? What is the actor going to say about this character? And how how are we going to say it? So uh, when you when you're functioning well, it's uh, you pluck out those lovely things that are that we all have in common. And um, and there, there is a mastery here of, of close-up, of, of knowing when to go in for the close-up, which, which is tied into these emotional moments. And I think you, you know when to use close-up for the most impact. We saw that in the scene that we saw uh, with Philip and Ethan in, in Before the Devil. Well, it, it's one of the critical, uh, critical things in movies. Uh, you know, I'm always asked but when I give a class... Uh, the students and brand new young ones coming in. And the first question is almost invariably the same. How do you know where to put the camera? <laughs> and when you think about it, that's a tough question. Uh, and it's got a simple answer. It's not really a simple answer like all simple things. It's enormously complex. But you have to begin someplace. And the, way, the place you begin is very easy. What do I want to see at that moment? So the choice of the, when to use a close-up, how to use a close-up, is so critical because it involves editing, it involves lighting, it involves the lens plot of the piece, and the, the problem of uh, one of the things clearly that happens in any piece of work is saving your tools for when you need them. Uh, if you start dissipating them, the, the, using them when they're not needed, they're not going to have the effect that you want when you do need it. So that selection is uh, critical. The, the, uh, it was interesting, David, because I came from television, uh, 
one of the things that relates to close-ups is the scale of the screen. And the biggest difficulty I had adjusting from TV, by the way, this was live TV, none of it was on film, uh, was adjusting my way of telling a story on a 17-inch piece of glass versus a 40-foot image. Hmm. So that the close-up on a uh, movie screen means a hell of a lot more than uh, a close-up in television. And in fact, you're forced to it in television because the screen is so small. Forced to use it too much. Now, um, one thing about... 12 Angry Men that struck me that actually relates to the new movie. And you'll pardon me for jumping around. I know you, know, you have a new movie opening t- tomorrow and we're uh, out there reading the reviews of this movie and we're asking you to look at this 50-year career. But this, this streak of unsentimentality, of, of um, there's this idea which comes up in your book that sentimentality in movie can often be, to use your word, bullshit. Um, and, and I love you, even writing about 12 Angry Men, you said that you were worried about some of the scenes se- seeming sentimental. There's a moment when Lee J. Cobb is making bigoted remarks and all the, everybody else gets up and turns their back to him. Yeah, I, and it's a powerful I, moment, but you were afraid that that might be sentimental, that sort of a movie sentimentality. Yes, and also <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it in the script. I think we got away with it because uh, I staged it wonderfully. <laughs> <laughs> and shot it well. But, but, uh, yeah. but it's a very dicey moment. I cannot really imagine somebody going into a racist diatribe, one person among 12, and the other 11 people all walking away from them. Not in our lives, not in our city. So let's uh, to jump to, to this material, because but the new movie, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, is um, an incredibly tough-minded movie. Somebody said it, it um, has, can be compared to both film noir and to Long Day's Journey and Tonight. That's what one of the reviews said. And I thought that wow. was great. I thought that was great. Um, what drew you to this material? Because it, it is a tough movie. It's about, I mean, I didn't even synopsize the plot, but the idea of making a movie about two brothers who try to rob their own parents' jewelry store and everything goes wrong. So, but what drew you to the script? Well, you know, today, melodrama is a very sort of uh, frowned upon uh, genre. And uh, I, don't know, I don't know why. I love melodrama. <laughs> uh, all it is is reality pushed to a certain ex- extreme. It's... Uh, all of all melodramatic stories are uh, highly improbable. Yeah. Uh, where they where, where they come a cropper is when they're impossible. But, so the trick is to to make sure that the story is highly improbable but not impossible. And uh, and so for me it was uh, very exciting. I, I I've done a lot of melodramas. And in, first, in fact, the first television show that I directed was a show called Danger, which was a, a half-hour melodrama. began with a knife and a fence going, <laughs> and, uh, and I, I, I've just always loved it. And of course, so much melodrama uh, um, has to do with the family. The, and, and, and you made a decision with this script, I believe, which I didn't know until today, but the script that you got did not have these characters as brothers. Originally. No, they were that, friends. So tell us about that, that choice. Well, well, the first thing I realized about the script was that it had to be performed at a white-hot level, that the intensity in it had to be enormous, uh, that that would help me reach that line of improbable but not impossible. And uh, so it was a question of looking for the sources I could use to uh, intensify the feelings on a real level. And, uh, and it occurred to me, oh my God, if they're brothers, it's really going to make it agonizing. And it's going to be great for the, for the, uh, for the actors because they're really going to have something to, to come up against. And uh, so we did that. And, and another thing that you added, and this um, is my, my last spoiler of the night, but the sex, that you, you start the film with a sex scene that is quite mm. strong. It, it, um, could you talk about, about adding that? And 
I put that in, <laughs> and I don't, uh, I don't know how many of you know the pictures I've done, but I don't usually have sex in the movie at all. Uh, one of the reasons is I never believe it. Uh, <laughs> hmm. It's always two actors, they sweat them up <laughs> with, with glycerin, right. and, and then they've got to go... <laughs> uh, <laughs> There was one, in one picture, in all the sex scenes I've seen, in one picture, I believed it. And it's because they were really doing it. Uh, but, uh... Oh, they want to know what film. You work it out. Uh, uh, the, uh... Oh, you come on! <laughs> What do you think I am, a gossip? <laughs> uh, in, in, uh, in this movie, the driving force, from a story point of view, is Philip's character. And I therefore thought, again, in terms of making the stakes as high as I could, that the basic thing that we have to know about him, because it's not critical in melodrama to know much about the people, in fact, where they come from, blah, blah, blah. Those things aren't important. In melodrama, you're dealing with story, primarily. And, uh, but I did think, for his character, it was important to know what does this man want? And there are two scenes in which you, I hope subtly, find that out. Uh, and the picture opens with Philip and Marissa, uh, on vacation in Rio in a hotel room and just having a terrific time. And that was to start him off so that you knew later on when you see them just having unsuccessfully made love in their New York apartment, aha, uh -huh, that's the reason he wants to get back to Rio. Yeah. Uh, that and there's one other scene when he's in his dealer's apartment and uh, and you see the way he treats that apartment that's what he wants he wants those two things uh, and God knows uh, well I know one thing about that scene it's wonderfully done and uh, and that's not the picture I was talking about and uh, <laughs> and uh, by God, the audience stops eating that popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I said before I wanted to sort of dispel some myths about you. One is, another thing that we hear often is that you're a realistic director, that, that you just sort of show things as they are and your films are not stylized. And I think that's not really true. Um, and I think we'll see some examples of that um, throughout the clips. Um, in this film, you have um, a transition between scenes, a use of editing that's very startling. I, I won't really... It's sort of a, a jumping back and forth between scenes that really makes the audience pay attention to the edits. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk about that? Well, one of the things, and this the, uh, the writer of the script, Kelly Masterson, did. I wish I'd thought of it. <laughs> it was a wonderful idea. Uh, he fractured the time frame. Yeah. And so you come up to a certain point in the story, and then you jump back, but you're now going, jumping back with another po person's point of view. And you go up to the point you reached and then a little past it. Yeah. And then again you jump, jump back, and now, but it's now with a third po person's point of view. And you might go through two incidents you, you've already seen, but it's different because the point of view has changed. Yeah. And it was a wonderful uh, writing idea, and, and uh, it had great, great value for me. Okay. Now I'm going to use this as a segue to go back to another film that had um, a, a, a very interesting use of editing. was The Pawnbroker, where you're, um, in that case, have a character played by Rod Steiger, uh, again, building up to a cathartic moment. And, and we see what's going on in his mind through this introduction of flash, flashbacks. You talk about creating this editing style. There was a... Uh, when the script arrived, it had... Uh, fictional scenes in a concentration camp. 
but with instructions to use newsreel footage. And uh, there was no way I was going to do that. Uh, nobody was ever there so that I could use it in a commercial picture. And uh, so we had to create our own. But then I faced the problem, because it happens, I don't know, ten times during the movie. It's a, it's a big part of the movie, what he's trying not to remember. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about his sealing himself off from his own memories. And again, as so often happens in these cases, you simply try to work out of yourself. And I knew that uh, that's the way my mind works when I'm trying to block something out. I'll be busy with something and a flash will come through and I'll concentrate more on what I'm doing. Then another flash and another flash and the flashes will last longer and longer and sometimes if they're, uh, if it's an important enough memory, they'll take over. And I'm totally in that flash back. Uh, and so uh, we simply set about doing that in the editing room. Uh, it was technically very interesting because the common uh, belief at that time was that the that your eye cannot retain an image of less than three frames. Uh, there are 24 frames per second in 35 millimeter film. And that means that your eye can retain, uh, won't retain anything less than an eighth of a second. And I got curious about that. And we went, uh, we just made our own little experiments and we found that if we led you to it gradually, you'd be able to see even one frame. Uh, but you had to get to it slowly. And uh, so just from a technical point of view, that, that was a, uh, a terrific adventure yeah. because we were dealing with something that uh, had been a, an age-old rule and we found out that it wasn't true. And do you find, now that you're working, of course, at that time you're working on movieolas, I guess, and, and now you're working digitally. So how do you find that changes the editing process, because you're clearly a hands-on editor. Oh, it's, it's uh, everything about digital is infinitely superior. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'll never go back to film. <laughs> um, the, the next film that we're going to look at is The Hill. And, um, and so we're going to show you, don't only make movies in New York. This time you went to Spain and, and chose to go there at a time when um, it was 115 degrees every day of the production. And... Um, and this is one of the examples that I think Philip was talking about. We're going to see an actor, Sean Connery, who um, had, I don't think he had done anything quite um, as bold as the performance that he gives in The Hill. Great and Harry movie. Andrews up there. He's yeah. a miracle of an actor. Well, could, you, could you talk about, since you just made this film 43 years ago, it must be fresh in your mind, the production. <laughs> um, talk about working with Sean Connery and getting that performance. He's the best. Uh, an amazing man, an amazing actor. You know, it was so interesting all those years. Uh, people would say, oh, he's charming as Bond. Charming was the word. Yeah. Uh, not realizing that what he was actually doing was really high comedy. The, uh, that kind of performance and the techniques he was using would absolutely work with Sheridan, uh, you know, or any of the great old English farceurs, the writers, uh, they were, it was acting. It wasn't, uh, he's charming in person, yeah, but only when he wants to be. Uh, <laughs> and I knew from uh, the Bond performances that he was a, an, a hell of an actor, that that wasn't accidental, nor was it charm. It was high comedy. And so when this came up, and we met to talk about it, uh, in three minutes, all I had to know was, would that be part of his, would he want to show that side of himself? Hmm. That, that was all there was to uh, 
find out about. And we went off, uh, off we went, and then we subsequently did four more pictures together. But get, getting to that point where he showed that, was that an easy process? Uh, it never is, yeah. and yet it is. It's like all simple things. It's simple, and yet it's so complicated. Uh, the, the three actors who were here t- today, this evening, uh, you've got to understand one thing about actors. All good, act, all good work, all good creative work is self-revelation. It's through revealing ourselves that we hopefully encompass you. Hopefully, the chunks of humanity that we let out involve you and you and you and you and you and you, you etc. And that process is very painful. It's not our natural instinct or behavior. It, is, it may be in some societies, but, uh, but it sure isn't here. And, uh, unless you're Jewish. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, so, uh, uh, it's why I quit acting, because I was a pretty good actor. But I really, after I got out of the army and I did two more plays, uh, I didn't want to do that anymore. I got shy about it. I was not going to reveal myself to 1,500 or 1,200 strangers a night. And so the question is always, it's, one of the, it's the main reason I rehearse, what is the actor going to let us see of him or herself. The process of rehearsal is to develop enough of a mutual vocabulary and enough of a mutual respect, really, so that the inhibition disappears and that the actor feels free enough to, uh, to say, okay, I'm going to let you see that. You tell a great story about Paul Newman and the verdict in the book, and that's exactly what this is about, about self-revelation. Because yeah. you, and I'll let you tell us, tell, no, no, tell no, about, no, 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 I mean, the right fact there. that you felt that he, in the rehearsal process um, for the verdict, you just, you felt he was doing fine, doing the lines as they were written, but not, but something was missing. But you let him find that on his own. I mean, so, so could you talk about that? Well, you, it, it, you, it's just that, you know, Work is very complicated, our work. Uh, There are many ways of directing. There are no rights and wrongs about it. Uh, There are directors who like to get inside a person and get them to reveal things uh, without the actor knowing it. In in a sense, exploiting them. Uh, I'm just the opposite. I don't like... uh, I'm not an analyst. It's not my business. And uh, if there's something missing, let's talk about it and give them the choice. It's up to them. Okay, so the performance is not as good, and therefore the picture is not as good. I'm not a believer in, I'm going to get it if I have to kill everybody. If I have to kill everybody, it's not worth it. And uh, so... When I said that about Sean, what I meant was, would he let us see... You see, I'm sorry, let me just jump... I'm jumping around. Part of that self-revelation for an actor is him or herself. It's their sexuality. It's their anger. It's their frustration. It's their uh, feeling of love and tenderness. The instrument is the actor. He doesn't have a fiddle to hide behind. He doesn't have movement to hide behind. There's no hiding. The the nature of the art is that the actor uses him or herself for all that revelation. And that's hard. And uh, in the, the, the instance that you brought up, we were getting a fine performance and there was a piece missing. And... Uh, Paul and I were riding home. We lived right near each other. And I just told him frankly, 
uh, I said, Paul, look, it was a Friday and we were not going to resume until Monday. Uh, there's a whole section of this guy. The run-through was terrific. The picture's going to be just fine. Your performance is more than fine. But there's a piece, I think, missing. And will you, whether you reveal it or not, is up to you. And he knew just what I was getting at. And he didn't say a word. And he came in Monday and kicked ass, you know. <laughs> Could you talk at all about how this war, this process worked with with the new with before the devil knows you're dead? Because you have characters whose lives are basically falling apart. What's great about the story is that we see these brothers, um, and we see the, their lives unraveling. And, and how do you get the actors to that? Well, again, it's it's a slow process. It doesn't yeah. happen the first day, yeah. and uh, it's a slow development of confidence. Uh, their confidence in me in my ability to see it. Because believe it or not, there, a lot of directors get interested in very different things. A lot of directors get interested in where am I going to put the camera? And yeah, you go ahead and do that. And, and <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's not a shared uh, proposition in any way. And here, uh, because I knew I was going to ask for a lot of self-revelation, a lot of bearing uh, in nudity as well as in... Uh, emotions. We had to build that confidence slowly. And uh, by slow, I, I, I don't mean forever. I mean like three days. And uh, You did more rehearsal time. Than yeah, I, I, I rehearsed for at least a two-week period. On, on some pieces, I've rehearsed four weeks. Long day's journey into my... Uh, depends on the complexity of the characters. Uh, and here, I... I knew on the fourth day that we were in business. Uh, hmm. Because what I do is I rehearse it like a play. The sets are laid out, uh, exact proportions, props are there, glasses, guns, whatever. Whatever we're going to need, handle. And the first scene is uh, Philip and uh, Marissa making love in this hotel room in Rio. And I had very carefully added to the script an exact description of the positions I wanted them in. Uh, because it has happened, and it's happened to, I think, every director, uh, which is that you, scene 18, they're making love. And then uh, it comes the day and the, the director says... Uh, Okay, let's get rid of the clothes. And they say, what do you mean, get, get naked? And, uh, <laughs> and you can't force it because the union protects them that way, and rightly so. They can, at any point, refuse to be naked. And I, I knew I needed them both nude. And uh, Philip is not a conventional leading man. He's not that physically. Uh, <laughs> he's not Brad Pitt. You know, he's still here. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, no, that, that's fine. He, <laughs> and I wondered, it occurred to me, is Philip going to have more difficulty with this hmm. than Marissa? Because uh, he's never had to do this. And the way, uh, how good actors are with each other and how well they understand each other. Because it was the first scene in the picture... Uh, it was the first scene I had to stage, block. And there was a bed for the bed, for the bed in the hotel room. And we walked over to the set, and Marissa hopped onto the bed, got up on her knees and elbows, and slapped her ass and said, Come on, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> the generosity of that. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding how brilliant it was because she took all self-consciousness out of it if Phil had been feeling self-conscious about it. Uh, it was over. She, and she did it. Uh, and it was generous and giving and loving. And I don't, I'm sure, I don't think it ever occurred to her how generous it was. But she's got a generous heart and that's what she did without thinking. It was great. And 
Later on, she's got a scene where she's just about naked with Ethan. And uh, we got to shoot it. And uh, everybody popped out of their robes. And Ethan, uh, who I really didn't see at, naked in the shot, got naked. And just said, okay, all you, everybody here on the stage, if you want to watch the scene, get out of your clothes. <laughs> and it was again a total generosity on his part in the sense that he did not want oglers he, uh, you know she, uh, Marissa uh, if you see the movie has a ravishing body it's really so beautiful and he was not going to have anybody hanging around watching it for their own pleasure uh, if you were going to watch it take your clothes off you know <laughs> uh, and again total generosity and love of each other. And when you see that during rehearsals, uh, you know you've been working well. So is that the first time you had to direct a film naked then? Yeah. <laughs> as, as Philip told you, he wanted me on his head. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> this is, blows my segue to Serpico, but we're going to... Uh, <laughs> what I was going to say about Serpico is that you let Pacino get to this place. The film really builds up to this point where here's a character who's also falling apart. Well, what, t whose idea was it to have him dress as a Hasidic? I don't remember. <laughs> I really don't remember. Uh, as soon as I see anything Jewish on the screen, I assume it's mine. But, uh, <laughs> I, I don't remember. Al has a motor that is uh, one of the best I've ever seen. It uh, turns over immediately. And uh, like so many magnificent actors, his concentration is almost psychotic. Um, and once that engine goes, get out of the way because uh, something will happen. Uh, and it's interesting, it's, it's true of uh, all really wonderful actors. And it was one of the great joys of uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, because it happened with both Philip and with Ethan. They do they put surprises, absolutely unexpected things. Uh, not for the sake of itself, but just coming out of the human truth of the moment. And a scene like that, I think uh, it's uh, written for eight lines, t 12 lines maybe. And uh, I, I saw that Al was cooking and just let yeah. it go. Well, of course, he starred in um, one of the movies you did closely after this, Dog Day Afternoon. And... You know, one of the great things about the fact that you've done so many films is that watching the new movie, you see echoes of earlier films and sort of themes or ideas. And, and um, it was kind of striking to look at Dog Day Afternoon and realize, well, you've got, um, you, you know, those, crim those criminals, uh, Pacino and Casale, seem pretty inept. The new movie has um, probably even more inept criminals in <laughs> um, Ethan and, and uh, Phil. So you're somebody who is so prepared all the time and so on top of, what, of your craft and what you're doing. But you love something about these characters who just are clueless and they, they obviously didn't plan anything beyond like, going into the bank. Well, it's, it's wonderful to uh, deal with characters who are doing things for the first time. <laughs> uh, there is uh, fantastic, it's one of the best acted sequences I've ever seen, uh, seen in, uh, in this picture in uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, between uh, Ethan and, and Philip, where they're cleaning out the dope dealer's apartment of all the dope and all of his money, et cetera, et cetera, because they've got to get out of town now. And uh, it rises to a hysterical pitch that I couldn't quite believe it while I was shooting it. And uh, the reason is neither of them have ever done anything like this before. They also, Philip has had to shoot somebody uh, at the beginning of the scene. 
So they are both in a world that they, in their wildest imaginations, could not have been uh, aware of. And here they are doing it, and it's the first time. So uh, that's one of the terrific things about all of Dog Day Afternoon, is that it's a brand new experience for everybody. And, and could you talk a bit about working on location? And, and it seems like you in this film are responding to the bank, the way the bank was laid out physically, and sort of in terms of how you block the scene. Serpico is filmed all around New York City, and it's something that you've done a lot. So do you, going fresh into a location, does that spark ideas? Uh, it depends, yeah. David, completely on the picture. One of the things, for example, you have to make your decision at the beginning, what is this movie about? Uh, and how am I going to tell this story? That how is really that terribly misused word, style. On Dog Day Afternoon, the style couldn't, couldn't have been simpler. Uh, you, audience, had to believe totally, had to know that this really happened. If it did not have about it the, the feeling, uh, the texture, the smell, hey folks, this really happened, then it becomes a kind of cheap story. Yeah. Uh, the only way it's going to be what I wanted it to be uh, was that if you believed and knew, if the film was telling you every second, hey folks, this really happened. So uh, that became an obligation in the movie. So what I did was, I didn't want to go into a studio, but I also needed tremendous maneuvering room, physically, because I'm in that bank, I don't know, 60, 70 pages, literally, physically, the time in the movie, over half of it, is in the bank. And that means I've got to be able to pull out walls, uh, I, I need the ability to put the camera still anywhere I want to. So what I did was I found on this street, fortunately, uh, a warehouse. And we built the bank in the warehouse. And because we built it in the warehouse, we could take out any wall anytime we wanted to. And its doors opened right out onto the perfect street. And I didn't even want to use artificial light if I didn't have to, except to get the proper exposure for the camera. And one of the fortunate things about it, I mean, that's why we picked it as a, for the location, was that the front of the building was almost white. It was a kind of egg white. Now, the advantage of that was that we could then light it just the way it was actually lit, which was that there would be a police emergency van across the street with these enormous lights on them hitting the front of the bank. Well, the light stone of the front of the bank, the light bounced off it, and it bounced off with enough power that I could shoot the people across the street without adding any artificial light to it. And all of those considerations go into the picking of a location. If you have to change a lot, uh, then you, you better keep looking. And you kind of like kind of grungy locations or, or, or locations that seem kind of nondescript. Like the, in the new movie, the, the, you find this kind of strip shopping mall, suburban shopping mall, which is the most sort of ordinary-looking mall, but it's so... Uh, Banal. But now, yeah, but it adds so much to the film. It just adds to the atmosphere of the story. Well, you see, there again, they, that's why I say every picture is an individual problem. Uh, I don't expect that you're going to believe this story in the way you're going to believe Dog Day. Uh, <laughs> and I don't want you to. Uh, what the, the advantage for me was, with the characters so extreme, Marissa's and Philip's and Ethan's character and Albert's character, everybody in the movie is very extreme. Yeah. And... Uh, I thought it would be most uh, useful to have the backgrounds completely banal, unmemorable. I don't think you remember one thing about that 
store except when the guy gets shot going through the glass door. Uh, right. and, th- and so that the settings become a way of setting the characters off even more extremely. And as I say, but every picture is different. Yeah. But in the new film, it makes you able, as a viewer, able to relate to the story because you feel like... It's a know, way of is, telling the story. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, but here are characters who... Philip's character's just trying to hold down a job and, and he's just sort of barely holding his life together. Yeah, their lives are crap. <laughs> um, well, this sense of, um, you know, sort of characters who, who are leading lives of crap and who, who just um, have anger kind of just under the surface, Network is probably the most famous expression of that. I'm See, so glad I finally had a character who went crazy and it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now you have to be on the right wing to be that angry on TV these ah. days. <laughs> but the film is, of course, very fresh today and relevant. And you have Faye Dunaway's character pitching a reality show where she's going to follow a group of terrorists around. Right. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, Chayefsky, what, what can I tell you? He, he was prescient. Uh, I don't know if, how many of you saw a picture of his that he wrote called Hospital. Yeah. That uh, it's everything we're living through today. Uh, <laughs> including one terrific joke he had in it where a guy was on a gurney and they put the gurney into uh, an elevator and he died and nobody ever took him out. He just kept going up and down <laughs> for two days and the funny thing is that is exactly what happened about four years ago yeah. in a hospital in New York. Well, uh, and you did a movie, Critical Care, Care for you. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a good film. movie, yeah. good movie. Uh, <laughs> no, it is. I've got great affection, obviously, as anybody who's worked on them does, for the, for the pictures that failed, either critically and uh, commercially, I don't care so much about, but which didn't get the attention it, it deserved, and that's one of them. Uh, but uh, Patty, you know, people used to ask us all the time, uh, my God, what a brilliant satire. And Patty and I said, that's not satire, it's sheer reportage. And, yeah. and it turned out to be absolutely so. Yeah, yeah. Now you have, a, um, in Prince of the City, which is really um, just such a great epic accomplishment, and I, I know that uh, one of the big fans of the film was Akira Kurosawa, the Japanese mm-hmm. director, who really appreciated the artistry behind it. Um, you have a character played by Treat Williams, and it's, again, one of these sort of incredible performances where he's an ordinary cop who has a breakdown and, and has, um, you know, similar to what we saw with Peter Finch, but he's playing sort of an ordinary guy and, and, and really struggling with these moral issues and, and building up to this breakdown. So, um, you know, his character goes through so much in the film. We see so many sides of this character. There's so many types of locations, and this is something I was suggesting about stylization in, in the film. These are all real locations you filmed all over the city. We have a lot of the location photographs at the museum, location scouting uh-huh. photographs. Um, but the, the sort of um, different types of apartments that you film and the contrast between this Central Park West uh, lavish apartment and some of the Queen's uh, you know, backyards where the cops do their, their barbecues are so expressive. Could you talk about that? Well, aspect? I keep repeating this, uh, but it's uh, the basic thing that you work from. Every picture is different. Every picture has its own style. Uh, Prince of the City looks like a very realistic picture. It is. No, nothing in the studio. It's one of the most highly stylized movies ever made. It really is. Uh, and like all good uh, workers... I never let you see the style, I hope. I hope you never spot it. And one of the fortunate things about it is that it's a long picture. It's, I think, two and three-quarter hours. So you never see the style happening. It's a very gradual change in the whole picture, photographically and in performance. Uh, And yet, it is a true story. I don't know how Bob Lucy the uh, man who, whose story this was. I don't know how he lived through it. Uh, a seven-year nightmare. But uh, the decision to not go in the studio, 
to use uh, real locations and then start stylizing them. That's complicated. Yeah, and uh, that's the way we did it. And how would you describe that stylization? I'm assuming that's something that Kurosawa picked up on, that he appreciated. But, well, but what does that mean to you? It's like all, uh, you know, there's a simple wor- simpler word for stylization, which is how. This is how I'm going to do it, how I'm going to shoot it, how I'm going to pitch the performances. Well, like all simple things, it's enormously complex. Um, here, there is an obligation to let you know that it really happened. Uh, the fellow with the mu- mustache there, Norman, is playing uh, Nicholas Scopetta, who is your fire commissioner today. Uh, and uh, toward the end of the movie, there's a character from the southern, the chief U.S. attorney from the southern district. Uh, his name is Giuliani. <laughs> and uh, so... You, one of the things you begin with, for example, is controlling the palette, the color of the movie. Uh, it's not that stylized here, but for example, in the verdict, you never saw the color blue. Too pretty. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, it's a, in the verdict, it's a picture about memory and... Uh, it's an autumnal picture. Yeah. And so everything is russet and reds and, and dark oranges. And, uh, and in this, the palette was very carefully controlled, so especially with the clothes, because you've got less control with the locations. So that, for example, you never see it happen. But in the final courtroom scenes, uh, Whoever is there is in black. Hmm. Uh, there's a reason I have for that. It's not important to discuss it, only because the only thing that's important about it is what you, watching it, feel. And I would never, as I say, want you to notice that and say, hey, look, they're all in black. <laughs> and that did not happen. Yeah. Uh, but it's done for a reason. And uh, that kind of color control... Lens is used. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a brief word about that. It may bore the bejesus out of you. I don't know. Uh, the lens plot of a, of a movie, that is the lenses that I'm going to use, are critical to me. Because telling a story with one set of lenses will come out differently if I use a different set of lenses. Uh, lenses are the eyes of the movie. And uh, so that in Prince of the City, which is a a story of constant portrayal, nobody escapes. Uh, The government people are terrible, betraying all of the time. The cops are terrible. Uh, He betrays. The leading character betrays. Betrays the most, in fact. And uh, so one of the things I did was was I threw out what we call the normal lenses. There are certain lenses. No lens gives you what your eye sees in the proportion, uh, in the focal depth. That the, but the 35-millimeter lens and the 40-millimeter lens are considered closest to what the eye sees. Well, I, I never used them in the picture. I wanted either very wide-angle lenses or very long lenses so that nothing was ever quite what it seemed. So the distances were constantly distorted. Mm. You thought the person was far away, and all of a sudden they're right there. Uh, That's because of the lens selection. And becomes a way of telling that story. Now, as I say, I don't want you to see what I'm doing. All I want you to do is feel there's something creepy about this. (laughs) I think possibly running on empty fits in the category of an underappreciated film. It has an actor who we lost at a very early age, unfortunately, River Phoenix, giving a great performance. 
uh, one of your most overtly political films, that and, and Daniel, probably, in terms of dealing with politics. Uh, your films always seem to come back to family and relationships. I mean, this, as I said, it was a political film. The story of the film had to do with, you know, sort of 60s activist family and this character trying to break out of that, define himself. There's an amazing scene with Christine Lottie um, meeting her father. Mm. Um, that's a really powerful scene. Again, it's you're dealing with ideas, but ultimately you, it's the very first thing you said about dealing with faces and dealing with people. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the, the thing of, of uh, politics in movies, uh, you know, that old 60s saying, everything's political. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a political person. I have very strong beliefs, but I don't want to proselytize. I... We used to have an expression in the 30s and 40s uh, called agitprop. It was short for agitation propaganda. And that there were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of wonderful plays by Clifford Odets and many other writers that were pure agitprop. Uh, to me, it's bad drama. And if it's bad <laughs> drama, it's uh, bad agitprop. Yeah. And the thing about Daniel and about this movie is that I'm certainly not den denying that they're political films, but primarily what they're about, to get back to that old phrase, uh, is the cost that children have to pay mm -hmm. for very committed parents. Mm -hmm. Because that's who does pay. The parents are having a fine time. They're off making music or painting pictures or dancing or what have you. But the kids are not. And, uh, and that's been something that uh, I've been obviously concerned with. And to see that kid working, yeah. it's just... Yeah. I know, what a loss. For anybody who feels like the new film is, is some kind of comeback, the film you made just before this was a pretty terrific <laughs> movie, too, called Find Me Guilty, with um, a revelatory performance by Vin Diesel, who is mainly known for action movies, but is wonderful in this movie. When you're reading scripts, are there, are there scenes that jump out that make you feel like, this is why I, I want to make this movie? You know, you the first time I read it, I just uh, let the whole thing wash over me. Yeah. Uh, I might enjoy a scene particularly, but I don't get focused on any one thing. I'm, yeah. I'm dealing with all of it, which is uh, right for me. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.